Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode three, Metallica and more. In this episode, we shall discuss examples of practical chemistry performed in the early historical era. We finally enter the era when people began to write things down. That is the historical era. Scholars know of at least four distinct, independent times when writing appeared for the first time. Cuneiform was used between 3400 and 3300 BCE in today's Iraq. Hieroglyphs in Egypt at about 3200 BCE. Ideograms in the Shang Dynasty of China around 1300 BCE. And around 900 to 600 BCE in Central America. With writing, we can begin to find chemical recipes for processes and a bit of what people thought about those processes back then. In fact, by around 1500 BCE, we find many, many documents describing chemical processes for preparing inks, pigments, and paints. In the last episode, we discussed up to the end of the Stone Age. But there was already a bit of copper employed for various tools. By the very end, bronze, an alloy of copper and another element, was beginning to be used. So scholars call this time the transition to the Bronze Age. Bronze spread through various Eurasian civilizations because it is harder than copper and it's easier to cast with a lower melting temperature. In the last episode, I talked about copper tin bronze. But there is also copper arsenic bronze because the element arsenic often occurs naturally in copper ores. We call this kind of bronze arsenical bronze. It is not always clear from the archaeological record how much of the arsenic was deliberately added to make bronze, and how much was a random impurity unknown to the metallurgists of the time. Arsenical bronze was made in Iran and Mesopotamia, Israel. China, northern Italy, Ecuador, and Peru. Tin bronze generally won out over arsenical bronze, probably because it was a bit easier to work with. One practical observation that metalworkers noted was the sound of bronze when struck while hammering the bronze into shape. Workable bronze, when hit, gives a dull tone. Non-workable, brittle bronze gives a high-pitched sound when struck. This is a way to test that brittle bronze needs annealing to prevent cracking during hammering. Perhaps the most famous event to Western civilization in the Bronze Age is the Trojan War, which required bronze-armored warriors hurling bronze-tipped spears. We might regard the kill (kiln) in which metals were smelted and cast, along with baking pottery, glass, and bricks, along with bread. As the first piece of chemical apparatus, another early historical chemical process was leatherworking or tanning. Animal hides were steeped in salt, to which was added alum, gall nuts containing what we now know to be tannic acid, grape juice, and other materials. In the Middle East, the tanning agents were generally plant-based. The resulting leather was oiled or greased to become supple. This process was considered ancient even to the ancients themselves. A cuneiform tablet notes in 1700 BCE that in days of yore a farmer passed these instructions to his son. 
The early historical Egyptians, around 2600 BCE, discovered a process for preserving dead bodies, what we call mummies, involving chemical change. The process was something like this. 1. Removal of all internal organs that decay rapidly. Many of them were placed into special canopic jars that accompanied the mummy. 2. Drying the corpse with the salt we encountered in the previous episode, natron. The natron was packed around and inside the body. 3. Fake eyes were often added. Sunken areas might be filled out with linen. 4. The body was wrapped in yards and yards of linen. The whole mummification process took 70 days and also involved a fair amount of ritual incantation. It seems also that the Egyptians were the first people to understand the value of salt in preservation of food. What happens with salt preservation is a chemical change as well as we understand it today. The salt removes unbound water molecules from activity. Therefore, there is less water available for microbes to grow and cause the food to rot. Extra salt in food will cause microbes to undergo osmotic shock. This means that the microbes' cell walls break and kill the microbes. It is also possible that extra salt may lower the amount of oxygen in the cell's liquids, it may block enzymes from working, and may even make microbes work harder to pump out the salt from their cells, slowing overall microbial growth. But all of this was unknown to ancient peoples. We only understand this preservation process within the last century. By 2000 BCE, Inscribed tablets also provide recipes for extracting materials from plants, steeping them in hot water. Dyeing include copper salts and plant juices. A very early and popular dye of the time was madder, M-A-D-D-E-R. Madder was used for dyeing fabrics at this time. It's a common plant in the Mediterranean region, Asia, Africa, and the Americas. It provides a red color, now known as the molecule alizarin. We will return to talk about alizarin in the later 19th century. A second popular dye was indigo. Indigo is a vegetable dye originating in the indigo plant, a legume probably from India. To use the dye, however, a bit of chemistry was required. A different type of salt, sodium hydrosulfite, a caustic material, was needed to ferment indigo leaves to obtain a blue-colored paste. We will discuss the idea of a salt in a later episode, as well as indigo. A third dye, this time from animals, was discovered at this time and used by the Minoans on the island of Crete by 2500 BCE. The animal was a mollusk called murex, which provided only a couple of drops of purple dye per organism. Thousands of snails were required to make a substantial amount of dye. The Phoenicians later became quite famous for their production of this royal purple dye. A fourth dye from plants was woad, W-O-A-D. Woad is a flowering plant that originally grew in the Mediterranean area, but gradually was imported into northern Europe during ancient times. The leaves are chopped up and steeped in very hot water for about 10 minutes, and then strained out, leaving the liquid. As with other ancient processes, soda ash was added to make the remaining solution alkaline. The dye, which is very similar to the royal purple from the murex, must be exposed to air to bring out the blue color. 
Nowadays, we know that the oxygen in the air is the active ingredient, but this was unknown to the ancients. There are online recipes for extracting your own blue dye from woad. By the way, in the western United States, woad grows very happily and is now considered an invasive plant. At this time, we find the first soaps made using practical chemistry. Specifically, the Sumerians made soap solutions for washing textiles. Solid soaps were not available till thousands of years later. The method of synthesizing soap was, and is, a chemical process. One boils fats, whether from animals or plants, in an alkaline solution. In those days, to make an alkaline solution, one leached wood ashes with water. This made a solution of sodium carbonate and potassium carbonate somewhat basic. So, the ancient soap maker boiled the alkaline solution and dropped the fat or oil into this hot liquid. Gradually, a dilute soap solution formed. Note that this soap making process was quite a complicated series of chemical reactions. How the early artisans learned to run a multi step chemical synthesis is unknown. By the late Bronze Age, around 1500 BCE, perhaps in modern day Turkey and independently in Niger, that rare but hard metal iron was smelted. The difficulty with iron ore is that iron was somehow more strongly fixed into its ore than either copper or tin were. A standard wood fire just won't get hot enough. A well ventilated fire with burning charcoal is required. So, the first methods for smelting iron used a similar smelting pit to copper, but with charcoal around the ore and a primitive bellows to blow extra air over the intense flames. This method was just hot enough to free the iron from its ore. Now, with a ready supply of iron ore, which is fairly common around the world, iron metal began to transform civilization. India was squarely into the Iron Age by 1200 BCE. Mesopotamia by 900 BCE, Central Europe by 800 BCE, Nubia by 500 BCE, and China by 300 BCE. Increasing numbers of iron tools, implements, and weapons meant that those with iron tended to conquer those without. Soon after the discovery of iron smelting, perhaps some charcoal contaminated the iron produced in these primitive smelters, creating a skin coating the iron with an even harder material, an alloy of carbon and iron we call steel. The word steel is an ancient Germanic word akin in meaning to stand fast, that is, the strength and inertness qualities associated with the material. With steel-coated weapons, the true Iron Age began. It turns out that this discovery roughly coincides with what historians call the Bronze Age Collapse. This collapse of society and powerful empires throughout the Mediterranean region, Southeast Europe, Northern Africa, and Western Asia may have been more dramatic than even the collapse of the Roman Empire 1500 years later. The cause of this Bronze Age collapse of 1200 to 1150 BCE is unknown, but some hypothesize that ironworking, or the power struggles over which governments had or didn't have iron, was involved. Silver began to be smelted from ore around 2000 BCE by heating the ore and blowing air over it like iron. Greece was especially known for its silver mines. The name silver is an ancient Germanic word, but of unknown origin before that time. Another metal discovered during this time was mercury. 
Quite an unusual material, mercury was shiny like other metals, but liquid like water and oil. Among its names are hydrargyros, Greek for water silver, and quicksilver, older English for liquid silver. It was discovered independently in Mexico and known in China, India, and Egypt by 1500 BCE. Precisely how it might have been discovered is unknown, but its ore, cinnabar, of orange-red color, was known in ancient days as a pigment. It often occurs geologically with silver, so perhaps it was discovered with silver mining. By this time, international and even intercontinental trade was quite active, especially in regard to metals, which were obviously prized for technology. The ancient Phoenicians in the eastern Mediterranean, for example, imported tin from Britain in northwestern Europe. Additionally, these chemical changes meant power, and in many cultures, these chemical changes became regarded as state secrets. In Egypt and Assyria, archaeologists have found cuneiform tablets and papyri warning readers never to tell secrets, invoking curses upon the tattletales. So, by around 1000 BCE, we have seven metals known to ancient civilizations. Gold, silver, copper, iron, lead, tin, and mercury. I point out the number seven here because seven was a mystical number in ancient times, and it will figure into our discussion of alchemy in a future episode. From this time forward, we begin to discern the source of our word chemistry. Egypt in ancient times was well known for its technology in glass, perfumes, oils, pigments, dyes, food preservation, and mummies. One hypothesis for the etymology of the word chemistry involves an ancient Egyptian name of their land, Kemet, which meant black land, from the all-important fertile black soil along the banks of the Nile River. The desert away from the Nile was called Deshret, that is, red land. Kemet was rendered into ancient Greek as Chimea, which ultimately resulted in our word chemistry. Perhaps you might then surmise that Chimea means Egyptian art. A second hypothesis is that the ancient Greek word cheo, I pour, is the origin of the word chemistry. I have also read of a third etymology from the ancient Greek chumos, plant juice, resulting in chemistry as the art of juice extraction. Whether any of these hypotheses is true or none is, it is very likely that the modern word chemistry is at least from ancient Greek. At this point, I think it would be fun to include a bit about the most famous collection of books in the world from the end of the Iron Age, that is, the Hebrew Bible, or Tanakh. I have invited Dr. Michael Karasik, a scholar of Biblical Hebrew and the guy who runs the podcast Torah Talk, to discuss a bit about chemicals mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. Welcome! Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. The Bible, of course, is not a science book, but there are a few windows that open in the Bible to give us a quick glimpse at chemistry in the period at the end of the Bronze Age, beginning of the Iron Age, from about a thousand BCE and for a few centuries on from then. I'm going to talk about three of them. The first of them deals with metals. You mentioned the seven metals that were known to the ancients. Mercury 
is of course liquid at room temperature and you can't make an object out of it and that may be why it is not mentioned in the Bible anywhere at all but the other six are mentioned and in fact there is one biblical verse that's Numbers 31:22, that mentions all six of them and that they are the only words in that verse gold and silver copper iron tin and lead. We learn something very interesting from them because four of them have Semitic names but two of them brought non-Semitic names into the Hebrew language which means you know for sure that those two come from elsewhere and they are tin which the Hebrew name is apparently related to a Sanskrit word and iron the Hebrew name is a little bit less clear where it actually comes from but it's definitely not Semitic and those are the two metals of course that are crucial at the beginning of the Iron Age Eric Klein in his book 1177 the year civilization collapsed says one of the reasons for the turn from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age may be that the collapse of civilization made it difficult or impossible to get tin in the Near East because all the tin to make bronze with your copper had to come from elsewhere. An article published in Public Library of Science 1 in 2019 describes 30 ingots of tin that were recovered from a shipwreck by a fisherman off the coast of Israel. They were sold to a guy who used the tin to repair car radiators, but eventually the University of Haifa got their hands on them, and they discovered that this was tin from Europe, perhaps actually from Cornwall in England. But once you couldn't get the tin and had to make objects out of iron, that technology was high-tech. It was not shared with everyone. And there's a passage in First Samuel chapter 13. I'll start reading at verse 19. No smith was to be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines, these are the sea peoples, these are immigrants from Greece, who landed on the coast of Israel. They were afraid that the Hebrews would make swords or spears, so all the Israelites had to go down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, their matlocks, their axes, and their coulters sharpened. And they tell you how much it costs to get that done. And they also tell you that when the Philistines went to battle against the Israelites, they had the iron weapons and the Israelites did not. And finally I want to turn to some let's call it household level chemistry. I had a student my very first year teaching at Penn named Andrew Coe who became a chemist slash archaeologist and there's now a whole field of archaeology in the ancient Near East that looks at the remnants on the insides of jars that held wine or olive oil and tell you exactly what kind of wine or olive oil and where the grapes and the olives came from. But there's also a passage a little bit like that 
in the book of Exodus in chapter 30 when they tell you how to make this sacred anointing oil you need a special compound of spices and it's probably no coincidence that what we call a druggist in America is called a chemist in England they tell you in Exodus 30 verses 23 and 24 the ingredients for this anointing oil, 500 weight of solidified myrrh, 250 of cinnamon, 250 of aromatic cane, so on and so forth. And the best indication that this is real chemistry is what it says in verse 33. Don't try this at home. Thanks so much, Michael. We have seen how practical chemistry slowly developed over thousands of years in early historical times from the Bronze Age through the Iron Age. But up to now, these changes merely happened, with no way to understand why or how. In our next episode, we shall talk about the first models, or theories, to explain chemical change, from the Greeks and Chinese. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. (laughs) 